Okay. Welcome, my friends, to Tom's Talmudish. Today's class has been generously dedicated by Marla Kribus and her children and Jacob Hacker to commemorate the yard site of Marla's mother, Fredel Basbela. May her sweet neshama have an aliyah and may the mishpacha only know of simchas. Amen. Today we are going to continue studying the Gemara in Mesechet Megillah on page 15a. And today we return to the actual text of Megillah Tester. The Gemara will expound on Mordechai's Paul Revere moment. Mordechai gets the news. What does he do about it? How will he respond? How would you respond? If you suddenly became aware that there is an imminent threat or a cloud that now lies above the Jewish people, threatening the entire nation with mass genocide. The Gemara begins its analysis by quoting the words of Megillah Sester. And Mordechai was aware of everything that had transpired. In the previous Gemara, before a whole bunch of seeming tangents, the Gemara spoke about Achashverosh ringing Haman, presenting him with the power to be able to do as he pleased. And Haman's nefarious intentions were absolute. An absolute extermination of every single member of Amiso. Nobody knew about this. You know, it's chilling, but there is no actual records of the gas chambers. There isn't any actual order. There's no paper trail. In fact, the Nazis, Yemachshimam, used the code name, Zunderbahandlung, special handling, cargo, which is how they identified the masses of Jewish people who were brutally stuffed into cattle cars as earmarked for special handling. The special handling, of course, the Chmon al-Itzlan, was the gas chambers and the crematorium. But they didn't want to leave a paper trail. Our sages tell us that Haman was very careful when he sent these letters out. He used euphemism. There was a lot of wink-wink, pun intended, stay tuned, the rest is coming. Because he feared that if the Jewish people would become aware of what he was planning, somehow they would thwart his machinations. He wasn't wrong. How did Mordechai know? In the commentaries of the Megillah, there is a number of different Torah ideas that are advanced. Rashi simply states, that Mordechai became aware by virtue of divine inspiration. Could have been a dream, could have been a prophetic intuition. In any which way that Hashem chose to communicate this to Mordechai, and we aren't exactly clear or sure how that was, but Mordechai was able to receive this message. And now he has the burden of doing something about it. Now Rashi, in his commentary on the Megillah, 
tells us that Mordechai not only was informed of Haman's intentions, he was also informed that there was, heaven forfend, divine approbation. Mordechai thusly understands that this is much, much more than a political campaign that has to be initiated. Mordechai understands that it is the Jewish people themselves who possess the power to bring about change. As we read in the Megillah, Mordechai dresses in a shocking way. And he does so purposely in sackcloth and ashes, the Erev Pesach. And Mordechai walks through the streets of the proverbial Jewish ghetto. And he's saying something. In the words of the Megillah, which are not quoted here in the Gemara, Mordechai goes out in the midst of the city. We will assume that the Jewish people lived in their own quarter. He cries out. It's an awful cry. A cry that is great and filled with pain. And so the Gemara now begins to analyze these words. Mordechai cried. What did he cry? What did he say? He didn't have time to gather the people and he wasn't able to make, if you will, a detailed press conference. He had to say a few pithy words. He doesn't have a Facebook account. He can't tweet. He can only go through the streets and he doesn't even have a megaphone. He's got to get his message out very quickly, very effectively, but also very secretively. What would he say? That is precisely the question of the Gemara. What was the code that Mordechai used? You know, in the Paul Revere story, there's a whole detail about one candle and two candles. And actually, if you research a little, you'll find out that much of the Paul Revere story is romanticized. It's written up decades later. It was written up at a time when the Union, if you will, needed to create a certain jingoism in the North as it mustered for the Civil War, and Paul Revere became the war hero they created. And that story, that narrative, was supposed to inculcate a sense of patriotism. <laughs> Essentially, in as many words, it's filled with inaccuracies, also known as falsehoods. There's nothing false here, of course. We're talking about our Torah. The Torah is precise, and the Torah is exact, and the Torah's lessons are everlasting. With regard to the Megillah itself, we have a famous teaching of the Baal Shem Tev that says, that the Mishnah that states, one who reads the Megillah out of order, does not fulfill his or her obligation to hear the Megillah. To hear the Megillah read from a kosher Megillah, not an electronic voice, not something simulating somebody reading the Megillah, because watching Megillah on Zoom or listening to a recording essentially is lemafreya. It's got to be dynamic. And the Baal Shem Tev explained that the notion of not lemafreya means do not read this as a story that once transpired. Instead, read and study the Megillah in a dynamic fashion as if, because indeed, Hashem is speaking to you and to me. That's the meaning of observing Purim, right? And that's how we're supposed to read the Megillah. So what did Mordechai say? 
I know. You might think, what difference does it make what he said? It makes all the difference in the world because as Mordechai galvanized his people in his time, so too we must galvanize our brothers and sisters in our time. When we are faced with difficulty or travail, we may not know why things are happening, but we do know that we have the power to bring about and effectuate change. We, as believing Torah Jews, subscribe to the notion that our mitzvahs, that our devotion to Hashem, that our commitment is real. And it makes a difference in the real world. With this view, when we read in the Megillah that Mordechai said something, his inflection is described in detail. Vayizak za'oko. He cried a cry. It doesn't say Mordechai communicated. It doesn't say Mordechai was able to publicize. The Megillah wants us to know that he cried out. And it was a za'aka gedola. doesn't just say he cried. A great cry. And it was a mara, a cry that was bitter. So we know about the, the, the sound, the, 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 the tenor, if you will. We know about the, 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 the syntax that it was a mara, it was a bitter kind of cry. We have all these descriptions, but we don't even know what he said. Shouldn't the Megillah have told, told us what he said? Wouldn't that be meaningful or important for us? The Gemara thinks the answer to that question is yes. For whatever reason, the Megillah does not choose to explicitly delineate it, but it's our privilege and our responsibility to read deeply into these words and to understand its lesson in our day and age. So we have the oral tradition, the Torah Shabal Peh, which accompanies the Torah Shabichtav, which accompanies the scripture, and it gives us an appreciation of what exactly transpired. And if I may, I want to suggest to all of you that a detail that perhaps we should bear in mind is when it's not openly stated in the scripture what was said, it means that Mordechai may have said multiple things. And a rabbi is not necessarily arguing about what he said, but what was the primary message? For the Megillah doesn't say what he said, but it says it was as a aka gdoilo mara. So what was the primary message? Of what he said. With regard to this very question, we find that there are two opinions. And then he went ahead and cried out. The Gemara doesn't describe the verse that talks about the details of what Mordechai said, because that's actually not the point. The Gemara is not going to be analyzing the way it's described. The Gemara is analyzing Mordechai got the news. And then he said something. What was his response? How did Mordechai react? What did he say? My Omar. What did he say? So the Gemara tells us there are, there are two major schools of thought as to what Mordechai communicated. We know how he communicated it. We know he communicated it with great fervor, with great passion, with angst. With worry, with anxiety, he alarmed the people. But what did he say? Omar Rav, Rav said, Gova Homon me'achashverosh. Homon has risen, has become more prominent 
over Achashverosh. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, Gova Haman me'achashverosh. In what way do we see that Haman has risen greater or raised himself to a higher vantage point than Achashverosh? So Rashi says, Shemil because Haman is speaking about things that Achashverosh would never dare to speak about. Now, Achashverosh was no friend of the Jewish people. He was a thoroughly dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite. We read that earlier in this very series, going back several classes, to page 13, we read there that the Gemara introduces us to Achashverosh with a metaphor. And the metaphor is about the Bala Haritz and the Bala Tail, about the person who had a ditch or pit in his property, and somebody else who had landfill. And it was as if Achashverosh had this empty, gnawing feeling, this feeling of, 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 of guilt or unhappiness like a cavity, like a hole in his property. And, Achash, and Haman said to him, I can help you fill the hole. I can help you fill that void. It's the Jews who are creating that void in you. It's this conscience. We need to get rid of it. Once again, I don't mean to overly harp on the Holocaust, but there are many, many chilling allusions and many, many chilling parallels between Haman Achashverosh and Hitler and his henchmen. Yemach Shumam V'Zichram. It was Hitler, may his name be blotted out for eternity, who said, you will never forgive the Jew who has given the world a conscience. Achashverosh has an emptiness, and he faults the Jewish people for that emptiness. And he dislikes us, and that's an understatement. And Haman is the one who comes along and says, I have a solution. A final solution, which Achashverosh accepts, but never would have dreamed of. It is Achashverosh, in the end, who is prepared to listen to Haman. But it's Haman who brings this reality forth. It's Haman who dares to paint the picture and to illustrate how this genocide would look. So Rashi tells us, that Mordechai cried out that Haman has risen over Achashverosh. Haman is prepared now. Haman is doing things Achashverosh would never have done. So what's the message there? What's the message? Obviously it's a code message. It's a message that somehow the Jewish people would hear and most importantly Esther would hear and understand in a moment. I, I can't be sure of this, but I, I would like to suggest, make my humble suggestion. I think that this is what is being said to us. I think. This is the way it seems to me. When we, the Jewish people, fool ourselves into thinking that the world loves us, everything is just fine and dandy. There are a couple of anti-Semites, 
but they're no worse or dangerous than the people who dislike blacks or people of a particular sexual orientation. They're no different than any kind of xenophobes or, or a hatred or racism out there. It's another form of it. We're fooling ourselves. Because unfortunately, amongst just about every class and just about every single civilization, some hated one race or hated or despised another race, some embraced one kind of orientation or denigrated another form of orientation and lifestyle, but all have shared the common denominator of anti-Semitism and their hatred for Am Yisrael. This is a tragically documented fact. It's a fact that cannot be ignored and should not be glossed over. Oftentimes, over our long, painful, and storied exile, we, the Jewish people, have lulled ourselves into thinking that we are safe and secure. We don't need Hashem to protect us. Our government will protect us. The Constitution will protect us. The Bill of Rights will protect us. Yeah, and perhaps this politician has no great love for the Jewish people. It's true there is a minister or a member of cabinet who is an outright anti-Semite. But, you know, the leader themselves isn't really an anti-Semite. Don't fool yourself. And, and even though they don't love us, they would never do anything terrible. We have this false sense of security. I'm not talking about pipe dreams. This is documented. This is like, like, like chapter and verse if you go through the text of Jewish history. Time and again we have lived in freedom and in plentitude, enjoyed the rights and the luxuries of every other member of the local citizenry until we weren't. The last place, but certainly not the only example of this, was Germany in the 1920s. The Jew was most emancipated, most assimilated, most successful, and most welcome into the ranks of the rest of society in the 1920s. Certainly in Europe, the country would have been Germany. Lithuania, which was close behind. In Lithuania, incredibly, when you went to get your prescription filled, which was a government-run agency, the prescriptions were in Lithuanian and Yiddish. Vilna was called the Jerusalem of Europe or of the East. Jewish people lived in tremendous prosperity. Probably one of the nicest places, most comfortable places for Jewish people to live in Eastern Europe probably was Lithuania. And yet, tragically and horrifically, 98.2% of Lithuanian Jewry was killed before the cattle cars began running. No other country in Europe has a higher percentage of the Jewish population being wiped out and decimated. And who did it? Tragically, not the Nazis, or hardly the Nazis. Mostly local militias, police officers, patriots, freedom fighters, anti-communists, 
and so many others of the local population. And today, the government is rewriting history as we speak. It would be foolish for us to think that the last 17 or 18 centuries of Jewish history have nothing to teach us and that we are 21st century Jews and that everything is different today. Guess what? The Jewish people in Persia thought much like we did today. They weren't ready to go back to Israel. They were prepared to turn their back on Jerusalem even though the Beit HaMikdash's construction had started, it had stalled. Many people were living in small townlets in Israel, but many, many more had decided to remain elsewhere. Mordechai the Rebbe was a senator, a high-ranking senator at that. And there were lots of the local Jewish population who knew exactly who Esther was. When in Jewish history do you have a high-ranking rabbi as the high-ranking senator who is the chief rabbi of the Jewish people, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people, and the queen is one of ours? the niece of Mordechai, and according to the Gemara, the wife of Mordechai. Yes, Achashverosh is no lover of the Jewish people. That's true. He demoted Daniel. Daniel, we'll hear about that in a few moments, at least according to one opinion in the Gemara. He hasn't been particularly kind. He doesn't like the Jewish influence, but he would never do anything to really harm us. Now, Haman, Haman is a, he's an extremist. He's just the, the extreme fringe of his caucus. Haman is a nut job. He's a crazy guy. He's a horrid individual. But he's never going to have any influence. And Mordechai now goes to the streets and he's ringing the alarm bells and he's saying, Gova Homon. Homon is not the fringe. Homon is not the lunatic. His voice is being heard now. He's saying the things Achashverosh never would have said. You're right. Achashverosh wouldn't say those things. Achashverosh wouldn't dare do those things or even think of them. But Haman does and is and will. And them is the facts, as they say. This is what's going on now. This is my humble suggestion. My way of understanding the code where Mordechai says, My dear Yidelach, you want to know, you want to know my Omar? My Omar, as Rashi says, When he cried out that great bitter cry, what was he saying? Was he just crying, just wailing? He was saying something. And Rav says, This is the words he was saying. Again and again, he said three words, Gova Homon Meachashveresh. Homon's fringe is now mainstream. Homon's ideology has trumped Achashveresh's. Miloy Libo Ledaber Mashalei Ola Alev Achashveresh. He's speaking things Achashveresh never would have spoken. The Gemara goes on to say, this is the opinion of Rav, however, the chief protagonist of Rav, who argue about so many different things, especially here in the Megillah. Many arguments have abounded in these pages between Rav and Shmuel. V'shmuel Omar Shmuel says, it was not a commentary of the politics of the day, but rather Mordechai was speaking to the spiritual reality of the Jewish people. 
He was talking about not the superficial shift or seismic change in society that had occurred literally in a moment as it had occurred in so many places like Lithuania that I just spoke about. Shmuel says Mordechai's message was primarily a spiritual one. Vishmuel Omar and Shmuel says Govar Malka Ilo The heavenly king has overpowered the earthly. The, su- the superior or supreme king has overpowered the terrestrial or lower realm of, of kingship. So what does this mean? That sounds great. Who is Malka Ilo if not HaKadosh Baruch Hu? So Rashi says it's not great. It's not great at all. It's an alarm. How was Mordechai ringing the alarm? Kinoyu. With euphemism. Very wisely and strategically choosing his words. It's a kinoy, it's a euphemism. Lehepech. Mordechai is saying it's actually exactly the opposite. But he used he used what's called a clean manner of speech. He delivered the most devastating of news. But he used what you would call a positive prose or an uplifting way of conveying this tremendously downcast development. So why would he do that? What's the point? Now on the surface, maybe the point is The point is that we know he said something and we know he was probably speaking in code. So if he's speaking in code, traditionally the rabbis didn't like to use negative terminology. They would speak about the most terrible of things but they would try to use a more positive kind of syntax. And I'll soon share with you a number of different examples. So our sages understood that Mordechai didn't just go around screaming. Sages don't scream. The words of the sages generally are heard not in yells and screams, but rather in a notion of calm, serene, collected kind of, 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 of fashion. Mordechai had to do something extraordinary here. He had to shake the people up. So he's screaming. But he wasn't just screaming empty things. We know that he must have been saying something. And it's so curious that the Megillah doesn't share that with us. So Rashi says, Lashon Sagi Nohar. I'm using those words. But Lashon Sagi Nohar is a, me- a methodology, a manner in which our sages used to speak. Sagi Nohar, the word Sagi in Aramaic, means a profusion of, or a great deal of. Nohar in Aramaic, or the word Nohora, means light. So Sagi Nohar means great light, profusion of light. Do you know what a saginohar is? A saginohar is the way our sages would refer to somebody who is legally blind. But because we wouldn't want to speak or use negative language as blind, we say too much light. And after all, There is truth to the euphemism. 
for when faced with great light, people are often blinded. Furthermore, it happens to be that today we know scientifically that when the iris expands, the less, not the more you see. And if the iris becomes very large and allows too much light in, then the eye won't be able to see at all. Of course, the eye isn't seeing. The eye is the mechanism that's conveying the images to the brain, which interprets it and tells the eye what it sees. And you need to have a very, very small amount, a tiny, tiny crevice for the light to go through, but just enough light, not too much light. When you go to the eye doctor, you'll have difficulty seeing afterwards. You need to wear dark glasses if you plan to drive home. Why? Because they dilate your pupils, which means they, using drugs, they're able to, with a few drops, slightly, ever so slightly, dilate the pupil, make it just a little bit larger. It enables them to look inside your eye to make sure that your eye is healthy. It also means that you have more light than typical now entering through the iris, and as such, you can't see as well. So the euphemism does have an element of actual truth. But primarily it was understood not as a scientific commentary, but it was understood as a clean way of saying something negative. Our sages are very, very careful not to use negative terminology. We know the Torah tells us, discussing a non-pure and tome animal, Habehema asher enenu tahora, the animal that is not pure, instead of saying the animal that is tame, which is Hebrew, for the opposite of pure. We saw this with the Rebbe. The Rebbe was so careful about the words he used, always choosing words that had a more positive connotation, as has been shared recently in many, many different circles. The Rebbe didn't like the word deadline, because the word dead is a terrible word. He preferred the word due date because due date is how we speak about new life being born. The Rebbe didn't want them to call hospitals Bet Cholim. He said it was a terrible name, House of the Sick. He said it should be called Bate Rufua, Houses of Healing. When the Kloisenberger Rebbe, Zuchern Levracha, opened his hospital, the Rebbe asked him to please call it a Beis Rufua or America's Rufua, which he summarily did. It is called Merkaz Rifui Laniado. After the Laniado brothers, who had provided the primary funding for opening this hospital in Netanya, where the, the Klosenberger, the Rebbe of Tzans Klosenberg, was fulfilling a vow he made in Auschwitz that if he would survive, he would save lives. So he calls it a Merkaz Rifui, a center of healing. Anyway, much more to say about this. Uh, let me just uh, give you an illustration. In the beginning of Masechet Brachot, we talk about the famous prayer Ashrei. You know, it's just at the end of Psalm, Psalm 145, and it's recited copiously by Torah Jews. In fact, if you daven, if you pray, Shacharit and Mincha, you will have said Ashrei on a daily basis three times. And the Gemara goes along and says, one who is scrupulous about reciting Ashrei thrice daily will not come to see the proverbial fires or torture or pain of Gehinnom, of the, the place in which the Shamas are rehabilitated and cleansed of the dross and toxins they absorbed during the course of the sojourn on earth. 
So the Gemara says, what's so special about this particular chapter of Tilim? Why do we choose Ashrei? And one of the Gemara's explanations is that it has a verse for every letter of the Aleph base. And the Gemara queries, but there is no verse for the letter Nun. We have Mem, we have Samach, but no Nun. And the Gemara says because that's because the word Nun is synonymous with the word Nefilah, which means the falling or failing. And the Gemara says, Because there is the fall of the haters of Israel, the anti-Semites. What's, what's not positive about that? Well, if you look in the Gemara, you'll find out that would be quite positive, but that's not actually what's being spoken of. We don't want to say the words, the falling or the failing of Israel, so we say the falling and failing of those who despise Israel. But it's meant inverted. So this is a fashion in which our sages speak. And essentially, what Mordechai was then saying is, as Rashi tells us, he was saying that the earthly king has overpowered the heavenly king. Achashverosh has trumped God. What does that mean? How could he speak this way? The earthly king, a mortal of flesh and blood, has vanquished God? The Maharsha is tremendously bothered by this. He says, It looks as if Mordechai was speaking words of heresy, words in which he denied God's supremacy and omnipotence, as if God could be vanquished. And therefore, he wants to suggest, the Maharsha wants to suggest that you must read these words literally. But if you read them literally, there's no alarm being conveyed. Yes, there is, he says. He says, because the upper king and lower king does not speak about heaven and earth, it speaks about the monarch and his viceroy. The upper king is Ahasuerosh, the lower king is Haman. And so, according to the Marsha, Rav and Shmuel aren't really arguing. Shmuel said, Gover Malka Ilah, a Malka Tato means simply that the Malka Tato or Ahasuerosh has now elevated, so to speak, Haman. Now, there is a... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to, to really to, to, to read it that way. The Marsha also suggests that Malka Tato had elevated, so to speak, put Hashem in the position where Hashem was going to bring the lower king down. As if to say that Mordechai was praying. He was trying to galvanize the people, people by virtue of his prayer. Why was he suddenly praying that the heavenly king should neutralize the earthly king? The earthly king, after all, had a rabbi who was a prominent senator and a Jewish wife. What was the issue? And so, they say the fact that Mordechai was suddenly speaking about the need to worry about the king, that was the basic message. Now, in either iteration of Marsha's explanation, essentially Rav and Shmuel aren't arguing about much. It's really a, an argument about verbiage, words. It's not an argument in content. 
Clearly Rashi does not have this approach. Clearly Rashi does not agree with the Marsha. And it would seem to me for two reasons. Number one, it's not what it says. I mean, this verbiage, this terminology, even a child knows what it means. We know that the, the upper king is a euphemism to God, and the lower king is a euphemism to what's going on here on earth. As it says elsewhere, monarchy or majesty on earth is like majesty or monarchy in heaven. So we know that. We know this. And, 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 and th that is the typical prose that's used. But furthermore, it seems to me, Rashi would be bothered by the notion that Rav and Shmuel aren't really arguing. It, and it really is the argument about the precise words, or is it more about the content? It would seem it's a question of content. And so what Rashi is saying is, we need to pray. We need to pray because right now it seems that the heavenly king is in consonance or in parallel with the lower king and that is to say suddenly Hashem is in agreement with Ahasuerus suddenly Hashem is in agreement with Ahasuerus and this is of course how Rashi explains it in the Megillah but it's also a euphemism because on the surface the earthly king has been allowed to dominate Hashem says, Yisrael am Kroivoy, you're my chosen nation. Achashverosh says, selected for genocide. Right now, we are selected for genocide, not chosen to be a light unto others. And so, Mordechai is essentially conveying to the people that it seems, it seems that the lower king has been allowed free a free hand. The lower king has been allowed to do as he wishes and pleases. It seems to me, and of course I don't know, I don't know this with any kind of certainty, but it seems to me that the difference, the primary difference between Rav and Shmuel was talking about the facts on the ground or interpreting this as a need for us to do tshuva because there was heavenly approbation to what was going on. According to Rav, Mordechai was emphasizing that the fringe isn't the fringe anymore. It's now mainstream. Haman is not an outsider. He is the one who's creating the agenda. A massive shift a massive shift in the political landscape whereas Haman according to according to the opinion oh, he's still there according to the opinion not of, of Rav but of Shmuel Mordechai's alarm was Kindalach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty is not happy with us something has gone very wrong and we have to do soul-searching. And we have to do tshuva. And we have to return. Because only this will save us. Only this will be able to lift us out of the difficult and very, very painful circumstances 
in which we now find ourselves. So this is the dispute between Rav and Shmuel. How did Mordechai ring those alarm bells? Now it's interesting to note that the Marsha says when you interpret it as he did, the word Za'aka Gedola could have two meanings. Za'aka Gedola doesn't only speak about the great cry, but rather the cry about greatness. Rav would say, Haman's rise to greatness. Shmuel would say, the terrestrial kings rise to greatness. And so each one had been made great at the peril of the Jewish people. So did it work? Did Mordechai's ringing the alarm bells get through to the people? We're going to have to presume the answer is yes. <laughs> As they say, the rest is history. But nowhere in the Megillah do we read about the people's reaction. What we do read is about the queen's reaction. And so the Gemara moves from the great call because Mordechai continued this lamenting. Hey, sorry for this interruption. The miracle of the internet. <laughs> it doesn't always seem to work. We're talking about impact now. Mordechai rang alarm bells. The question is, was he successful? We don't know. The Megillah does not talk about how the people responded, but the Megillah does talk about the response of the queen. It says in the Megillah, as we continue to read, after hearing about Mordechai's alarm bells, we hear about the jackpot. Yes, Mordechai is successful. How do we know that? Because the Megillah then says, that the message reaches Esther, the queen, in the royal compound, and Vatischalchal Hamalka. The Malka, the queen, experienced a Tischalchal, a very, very unusual word. To the best of my knowledge, the word Vatischalchal, in that sense, in that exact prose, does not show up anywhere else in the entirety of the Chumash. Now the assumption, the basic working assumption is that the word Vatischalchal is probably related to the word Chil. Chil means fear and the first time the word Chil shows up is in the Az Yashir prayer as in Chil Ochaz Yeshve Peleshes, the dwellers of Peleshet were seized with fear for the impending arrival of the Israelites. They didn't know there was going to be a delay <laughs> that took place because of a golden calf and Jewish people who later refused to go to the land of Israel. They thought, they're coming. The Jews are coming. Chil Ochaz. A terror gripped them. The thing is that it doesn't say Vatochil Hamalka. It says Vatischalchal. So it seems to be related to fear and yet it seems at the same time to be related to another word. The Maharsha explains that the word Vatischalchal also includes within it the Hebrew word Chalal. Chalal means a cavity. 
or an empty space or something emptying. So what does the Megillah mean? How did Esther respond to the alarm that was rung by Mordechai? It says, Vatischalchal, Hamalka. Freg the Gemara, the Gemara asks, My Vatischalchal. What does this mean? So Rashi says, Vatischalchal means Nismasmes Chalal Gufa. There was an emptying of the inner cavities of her body. In other words, her innards melted or wilted or collapsed. What is the meaning of innards that wilt, melt or collapse? Omar Rav, Rav says, Shapir Sonida, that Esther suddenly began to experience a menstrual flow an unexpected menstrual flow as if the uterus collapsed and it was releasing its, so to speak, uterine wall, which results in menstrual in a menstrual flow. So that's the way Rav understood the wilting or collapsing of the insides, the inner cavities. Rabbi Yirmiya, Omar, Rabbi Yirmiya disagrees with Rav and he says, she suddenly experienced the collapsing of her colon or maybe even the intestines and so suddenly her body was not maintaining because that's the nature of our digestive system that it builds up to a critical point and at a certain moment you have to relieve or empty yourself and typically if your colon is not ready for emptying you can sit and push, but nothing is going to happen unless you happen to take certain drugs or certain, uh, um, shall we say, uh, emptying um, medication which will cause you to empty your colon. Before you get a colonoscopy, of course, you need your colon to be empty. They can't tell you, all right, you know, spend time in the washroom and empty yourself. It don't work that way. The body doesn't just empty itself. So people use what's called a colon washing. These days it's popular in Hollywood for people to go through artificial colon washings thinking that it somehow improves their skin. We talked about this in a previous episode of the Gemara Mesechet Brachot and there is good evidence from the Gemara that there might be some truth to that. However, generally speaking, unnatural emptying of bowels or of colons is not a healthy thing to do. The body is designed to function a certain way and whilst we can enable and help the body function by eating healthy things, to artificially accelerate the process of bodily emptying is probably a very unhealthy thing to do. If you need a colonoscopy, well, then you need a colonoscopy. You do what has to be done. But to do so on a regular basis is not healthy. It's not the way the body was designed. At any rate, the point is that when the innards are robust, the uterus can hold on to what is inside the uterus, as it is primed for the possibility of receiving a, an embryo. But suddenly Esther's uterus collapsed. Or according to the Biyiria, it wasn't her uterus, but her digestive or the relieving system. The colon collapsed, and she suddenly had to relieve herself. Now, what's the point? I mean, thanks for the sharing us those gory details. What difference does it make if she suddenly had an emergency menstrual flow or suddenly had an emergency run? What difference does that make to us? Well, 
obviously we have to think about this carefully and we have to view it against the background or the framing of how Torah in general sees fear and its effect. Let me direct you to the Gemara in Mesechet Nida on page 71 and there's also the same similar idea as talked about in Mesechet Sota on page 20 side B. The Gemara says that a fear which does not come upon a person suddenly but rather gnawing anxiety will have the impact of stopping the menstrual flow. In fact that's extreme stress can impede a woman's menstruation and that is not a good or healthy thing. To become, if you will, constipated with toxins. When the body can't rid itself of the things it needs to get, get, get emptied of, it's not healthy and it's not good. Stress is very bad for you. Stress can cause all kinds of illnesses partly because it causes a backup and it doesn't allow the body to function properly. The nature of fear is to atrophy and to freeze a person. When people are afraid, they're unable to act. They're paralyzed by fear, proverbially speaking. And the Gemara goes on to say in Meseches Nida that it actually can cause menstruation to shut down or the bodily function to shut down. However, the Gemara there also says that sudden fear a shock to the system can cause the system to collapse which would in turn cause or induce unnatural or premature menstrual bleeding. The point is this. Mordechai wanted to shock the people. He did not want to demoralize the people. He didn't want to depress the people. He wanted to galvanize the people. He wanted to wake them up. Was he successful? We don't know. It doesn't, the Megillah doesn't tell us how the people reacted. There is only one reaction documented, and it is the reaction of Esther Amalka, of Queen Esther. How did she react? Exactly as Mordechai had intended. She was gripped with a sudden fear. She went into panic mode. When people are in a panic, they act out. They're not frozen, they go nuts. Esther's body collapsed on her, her uterus collapsed. It's not even a thinking thing. I don't believe that a human being is capable of making their uterus collapse or making their stomach collapse. This is when uh, a, a visceral part of the, the brain or the, 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 a deeper part of consciousness takes over, which, which you can't control. People can't control things like this. When a person becomes terrified, no matter how much you tell yourself, relax, it's going to be fine, the body is still frightened. There's an amazing story told about the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, at the outset of the Holocaust, of World War II, the Friedrich Rebbe was at that time in a suburb of Warsaw, which is called Atwak or Atvatsk. It is said that whilst World War II began with artillery fire at Gdansk, which was a port, a Polish port, the first bombs, the first aerial bombing, took place over the village of Atvatsk, so the first bombs to fall. And within a few days, the Friedrich Rebbe had become evacuated from the smaller suburb into the Warsaw Ghetto itself. And in the Warsaw Ghetto, the bombardments, aerial, bomba aerial bombardments during the first few days were terrible. 
Many large buildings were raised. Many, many, many people were burned alive. When the bombs would come, the bombers would arrive, the planes, the people would take shelter in the basement, praying that if a building collapsed, they would be saved in the basement, in the cellar. And a chassid who was there, who was present, who later escaped the Holocaust through the generosity of the Japanese ambassador to Lithuania, Ambassador Sugihara, who issued all kinds of papers allowing people to escape when they went to Shanghai. So uh, Ambassador uh, Sugihara later saved this, this young man, but they, he's, long, he's passed since. Rabbi Yosef Weinberg relates that he was there in a cellar with a Friedrich Rebbe when the bombs were falling and everybody was wailing. The atheists were screaming Shema Yisrael. And the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, maintained a perfect samfra, perfect equilibrium. There was a certain moment when a, as a direct hit on the building and the entire building shook with sonic booms and it seemed as if the whole building would collapse, burying them alive, and he saw the Friedrich Rebbe's hand tremble. And I don't know if he asked or somebody asked the Rebbe if the Rebbe was frightened and the Rebbe said, I'm not frightened, but the goof is a goof, the body is a body. In other words, there's an element in which the mind can cogently or consciously control the situation and then there's an element in which there's a part of a person that you don't actually have control over. Think of this. You break into a sweat. Do you know why? Because when the body overheats, it needs to cool itself down. So you sweat. It's a cooling mechanism. Imagine you're out in the blistering heat. You're heading for an air-conditioned room. Say you're at a wedding. You're wearing all your finery and you feel yourself breaking into a heavy sweat. Can you tell yourself, listen, please don't sweat now, body. Give me exactly three minutes. I'm taking you to an air-conditioned place. You don't need to walk around for the rest of the wedding all sweaty. We can delay this. You're not going to overheat. Can anybody do that? The answer is no. You have no control over your body whatsoever. Esther, now receiving the alarm bells that Mordechai rang, was overtaken by a sudden fear. And the proof is that her body collapsed on her. And so Rav says, it, it, was effect, it effectuated, it caused unnatural, a premature uterine bleeding, the emptying of the uterine wall, a menstrual flow. And according to Rav Yirmiya, it was something that happened to her digestive system. Now again, I haven't found a real explanation as to what the difference between Rav Yirmiya and Rav is, but I have a suggestion to make. Women have uteruses, men don't have uteruses. Both men and women have digestive systems. Women, by and large, are more sensitive. We talked about this in a previous episode. And the question is, the message of Mordechai had an enormous impact, as was intended. In fact, to the point that Esther's body collapsed. Was it her uterine that collapsed? Was it her feminine because she was a woman and more sensitive to the message? Or was it something that went beyond the fault lines, if you will, of male and female and didn't matter who you were or how sensitive you were or weren't, it was the digestive system, which is equal within everybody, that actually collapsed. Anyway, maybe a ridiculous suggestion, but that's my suggestion. If you don't like it, toss it into the can. Just a suggestion.
At any rate, the rest of what I told you is definitely Torah, and it's, I'm telling you what says in the good book. So what happens next? Here we see, here we see Esther's samfro. Here we see Esther's incredibly calm, cool, and relaxed composure. Her body may be collapsing, but she doesn't lose herself. She immediately reacts or is proactive about dealing with the situation. She doesn't fall apart. Her body collapses. Her innards, her innards collapse. But she, she holds it together. She sends for somebody who is going to be able to assist. Now Esther understands that something has gone wrong here. Terribly wrong. She also knows Mordechai speaking in code. Esther's being watched, there's no question about that. In fact, according to one of the Midrashim, which we're not going to discuss today, the messenger she sends is assassinated by Haman's henchmen who are watching Esther carefully to see that nobody gets to her in time. They're suspicious that Esther may be Jewish. They know that there's a real relationship or liaison between Mordechai, the hated Jew, and Esther, the beloved queen. So, Haman has got her under surveillance. Esther sends immediately the next verb, the first verb is Vatishalchal. She melts down, she loses herself, but only for a moment. And that's what happens to her body. Like the Friedrich Rebbe, whose hand is shaking, but the Friedrich Rebbe never becomes fearful, never loses his cool. Esther, the great prophetess and great savior of the Jewish people, does not lose her cool. Vatikra, the next thing she does is send for someone who can figure out what it is that's happening and what must be done. Vatikra Esther Lahasach. So Esther sends for Hasach. Now, up until this point, Hasach has never been talked about really. We don't know anything about Hasach. We don't know who Hasach is. But the fact that Esther calls for Hasach calls for us to take a deeper look at this fellow. Who was he? Why did Esther call for him? Omarav, here once again the Gemara begins its exposition as it, start, it begins to sleuth and try to discover who was Hasach. Hasach Zedanil. The Gemara says unequivocally, Hasach is a code name. Hasach is what Daniel is called now. Now, Daniel is a very famous individual who has risen to great prominence in the decades prior, and yet, his name doesn't appear in the Megillah. According to the Talmud Yerushalmi, he met his bitter end, unfortunately. He was murdered right at this point in the story. But Daniel has a cameo role. Mordechai is talked of. Esther is talked of. Daniel never shows up. So the Gemara says, nikra hasach. Why is he called Hasach? And the Gemara responds, the word hasach can be read as chatach. Chatach means severed, cut. He was cut from his position. The Marsha says that the word hasach, the hay and ches, are interchangeable. First of all, they look almost identical. There's only a little bit of ink between a hay and between a ches. Number two, 
They come from, there are different meitzois hagaren, there are different guttural expressions that come from different parts of the throat or voice box, and aleph, ches, he, and ayin, acha'a, all come from a particular part of the voice box. And since the he and the ches make similar sounds, and since they look similar, so we find that sometimes there is a transposition or oisius mischalfais. Sometimes a ches and a he can be interchangeable. In fact, the Marsha draws us to a very interesting Gemara Meseches Brachas on page 30, where the scripture says, Bahadras Koidesh in holy resplendence. And the Gemara there says, Al Tikra Bahadras, do not call it splendor, Ella Charodas but rather terrifying, overwhelming, awe-inspiring kind of holiness. So we see that sometimes we have Oisius Mishalfos and Hasach could be like Hasach, cut off. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, Chaschuhu Migdulasai, cut from his greatness. When? Says Rashi, Bimea in the rain, during the days of the rain of Ahasuerus, Shaharei, for Belshazzar, Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling monarch of the Babylonian Empire in its waning years before it is crushed by the Median and Persian empires. So Belshazzar, the son of Evel Merodach, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, Yomach Shemom, during his time, he appointed three individuals to great prominence. And one of those three is Daniel. Rashi goes on to tell us, after Belshazzar's reign comes to an end, because Belshazzar is overrun by the Median hordes, so then we have Daryovesh Hamodai. Darius I of Media becomes the self-appointed Empire, emperor of the empire. Shenemar, during his reign, va'ola minhoin sarchiat losa. Di Daniel chad minhoin. He too relies on three major figures to adjudicate and to administer his empire and his governance. It's almost like a new king, same administration. He's, he figured he didn't care. They were running the government just fine. He just wanted to be king instead of Belshazzar. A Median Empire, not a Persian Empire. How about the actual State Department? Well, that's not going to change. Same diplomats. Daniel was doing a great job. So the same three, and Daniel is one of them. Darius doesn't last long. Cyrus replaces him. Korish is the one who initially gives permission for the Beis Hamikdash to be rebuilt. And, due to the Samaritans, the Beis Hamikdash's construction is halted. So the Jewish people have these, these enemies who live amongst them, a foreign people who was exiled to Israel as if to take their place, and they proverbially convert to Judaism, but it's a fake conversion, it's all fake news, and they still worship some eagle on, an, on, a, on a hill somewhere, and they want the Beit HaMikdash destroyed, and they tell Korish, Cyrus, if you let the Jewish people rebuild the Beit HaMikdash, you may as well, you may as well have your empire destroyed. That is the launching pad of rebellion. It is, that is their seat of power, and once that edifice stands, it will unite the nation, and they will come after you. Cyrus believes their slander, 
and he stops the base of Migdash from being built. But he wasn't essentially, as they say, an anti-Semite. He was just a pro-Cyrusite. He worried about himself. And he was convinced that it was bad. It was a bad idea for the base of Migdash to be rebuilt. It would weaken his hold on the empire. So during the days of Korish, he hated Israel. He didn't want Israel start to rise, but he didn't hate individual Jews. He thought Daniel was a great idea. And so, Shenemer v'Daniel hatzlech b'meluchas daryavesh u b'malchus Korish. Daniel was, had great success during the reign of Darius and during Cyrus, the king of Persia. Persia and Media, who had become amalgamated and created a confederacy, had a deal. There'd be a Median king followed by a Persian king. Ahasuerus kind of tipped to turn things upside down on their head. But initially it was Darius of Media and then Cyrus of Persia. Kurdish Parsa. But when Achashverosh came along, Achashverosh did not take the old administration. Achashverosh wanted everything remade in his image. Nothing of the past. Everything had to be redone. He was not a royal. He had no great pedigree. His father was a stable keeper for Belshazzar. He was an usurper to the throne, an outsider. And in doing so, he wanted to destroy previous pomp and circumstance, get rid of all old convention, and so it was natural for him to go after the previous loyalists to previous governments and to demote them. So he effectively castrates Daniel and the manner of speech, removing him from any power. And so Daniel, who was once an extremely powerful diplomat or a, very, a senior member of government, now becomes essentially just a royal wallflower. He's not accomplishing very much. But Esther knows who he is. And Esther knows she can trust. He's a big tzaddik. Daniel is chamudais. Daniel is precious in Hashem's eyes. He almost was the Mashiach. <laughs> Daniel is he's a very great man. And so Daniel, the great prophet, and you would say a person who maintained his loyalty to Hashem throughout his long tenure, of being in a very hostile environment to the Jewish values and ideals is trusted by Esther. So she calls for him. Now, nobody seems to argue that Hasach is Daniel. The question is why he's called Hasach. So according to Rav, this was somebody Esther could trust. He had been removed from his previous position. If he's removed, if he's an impotent member of government, why would you call for him now at a time of great need? You need a powerful member of government, not an impotent member of government. And the answer is, Esther first had to find what was going on. She couldn't trust anybody. She didn't trust the people in her own circle. Her own chief of staff and secretary, for all she knew, could bury her in a moment and probably loyal to Haman. Shmuel Shmuel said no. Esther wasn't worried about the details. She didn't even know what it was. Esther needed somebody who could be effective. So she called for the most effective individual. This wasn't about information gathering, it was about getting a job done. Shmuel Amar, what does Hasach mean? Both agree that it comes from the words cut. But he says, not that he was cut from his position, but Shekol Divri Malchus Nichtochen Alpiv. He was, if you will, the press secretary. All royal edicts would be cut by him. He was the one, the wordsmith, who would create the royal edicts. He was a very powerful person. He's a person through whom the laws would be disseminated. Now remember that Haman made sure to supersede the system and send out secret 
correspondence to the entire country. But typically, something like that would have come to the desk of the press secretary of Hasach. So Esther calls for him. Not only is he effective, he should know exactly what's going on. He should know if there's a change in government, wouldn't Hasach know it first? And so she calls for him. Ladas Maza, to find out what this is. Va'al Maza, and what it's about. Now, on a literal level, it's clear that the Gemara is talking about Esther is seeking information. What's going on? Yeah, but there's something more. The language of the Megillah, Ladas Mazeh, would make sense. Or Ladas Al Mazeh would make sense. But the fact that the Megillah uses, the scripture employs seemingly unnecessary verbiage. Ladas Mazeh, the Al Mazeh, that is a red flag. There's something going on here. Omar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak says, Esther understood the message. She understood this is not just a change in government. And this lends itself very powerfully to Shmuel's interpretation. She understood that something was going on from heaven. And that's why Shmuel's not satisfied with what Rav said. You can't just talk about Haman's rise. You can't just talk about the extreme fringes suddenly becoming enthroned as mainstream. Although one could argue that Esther would have understood that implicitly, Mordechai didn't have to say it if the, if the, if the fringe lunatic anti-Semites are suddenly now mainstream governments, Esther herself would understand that there is something deeper going on. That's what Rav would tell you. Shmuel would say to you, Mordechai essentially delivered that message. He said, Rabboisai, we're in trouble. There's a Maisa with Malchusa de Erekia. HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, the heavenly king himself is as if vanquished. Something's going on here. So Esther understands this. And because Esther understands this, she sends for, for Hasoch and she says, what's going on? What's going on? Have the Jewish people violated the five books of Moses? Have they violated the very core principles of the Jewishness? Esther knew that the Jewish people were assimilated. She was the niece or the wife of Mordechai who spent his life trying to reverse the devastating impact of mass assimilation of trying to get the Jewish people to do tshuva. Esther saw her husband pleading, cajoling, and begging the members of Am Yisrael not to go to the party on Shabbat. And she saw how they turned their backs on Mordechai and publicly ridiculed him. She knew that things were not good, but she never dreamed that this would be the cause of HaKadosh Baruch Hu turning away from the Jewish people, of the Jewish people facing an existential threat, being imperiled by literal mass national genocide. So Esther says, have they left Judaism entirely? Now, why it is that the Jewish people were deserving of such a devastating punishment when they seem to have only violated something which is minor is a notion that's beyond the purview of today's class. And I've discussed this in many of the previous episodes, and I refer you to go to Chabad.org or perhaps even on the YouTube channel. There are many, many times when we dealt with this question. I've offered a, a, a variety, a kaleidoscope of the different explanations, especially as the Rebbe ties them all together. I'm not going to return to that. But this was Esther's reaction. 
Have they violated the Chamishi Chum Shatera? Now, where does the, the Gemara say, where do you see that? Where do you see that? The Ladas Mazev Al Mazev, how did you get to the notion of the violating of the five books of Moses? So the Gemara says, the Chsivba, and it says about the five books of Moses, that doesn't say this about the five books of Moses, it says this about the Luchot, about the tablets of law that had the Aseret Dibro, the ten statements that Hashem made at Har Sinai, but those ten statements are said to embody the essence of the 613 mitzvahs. It says about the Luchot, that it says, that they were written through and through, miraculously written through and through. And some maintain that the whole Torah is miraculously written in them, as, as, as per the Medrash. Now, Reb Saji Gohan, and Rashi alludes to this in the Azharis, which is a special liturgical poem that he wrote to honor Shavuot, to the giving of the Torah, actually traces all of the 613 mitzvahs back to the Aseret Dibrot, identifying which mitzvot relate to which of the dibrot. But it is said that there are 613 words, or 620 words, and this relates to the taryag or tarach mitzvahs, the 613 or the 620 when you include the seven rabbinic commandments that are all included in and are alluded to in the actual aseret ha-dibrot. So it's ksuvah mizeh mizeh. Now it's interesting to note that some of the commentaries talk about the notion that they're written on two different tablets. And I want to suggest something. And again, you don't have to like this and you could toss it. This is just my personal suggestion, but I'm just throwing this out there. Perhaps Esther is alluding to the notion that there are two distinctly different pathways in our relationship with Hashem. One is between us and God. The other is ben adam l'chaviro, between each other, interpersonal mitzvahs. All of them allow us to nurture and development a deeper relationship with God. I talked about this in great detail in my pre-Shabbat sermon in Parshat Yidro. I talked about the notion of the two different pathways and how the luchot, have five mitzvot on one and five mitzvot on the other, representing the importance, equal importance, of ben adam l'makom and ben adam l'chaviro. And it seems, maybe, that Esther assumed even if the Jewish people had become soiled in their relationship with Hashem, as long as they still had Ahavat Yisrael, as long as they still lived together with each other in love, as long as they were still close to one another, Hashem's blessing would still be upon them. After all, we say, May Hashem bless us all as one. And we know that the Gemara tells us, There is no better vessel, no better convention or envelope to house or contain the blessings of Hashem. So at least if the Jewish people were respectful of one another and loving towards one another, at least then, even if they were turning their back on Hashem, they would still be able to receive Hashem's blessing. Esther says, Ladas Have they lost it entirely? Do they not only turn their back against Hashem, have they turned their backs on each other? Has it gotten that bad? For then Esther understands, we've reached a point of no return. Is this what happened? Anyway, as I said, that's just a suggestion. In the Sefer Menachem Meshav Nafshi, he has a very interesting way of reconciling 
what seems to be a, you know, the challenge of this notion of Seret HaDibrot or Hamishikum Shetorah. He says, we know that when Hashem gave the Jewish people the Torah, like a bride who gets cold feet on the day of her wedding, we said suddenly, eh, we're not so sure about this. I don't know if this is a good idea. And it says, Kof Aleim Harke Gigis, which is a medrashic thing is talked about in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat. God proverbially held a mountain over our heads. And he said, hey, hey listen here, Yidalach. Either you accept my Torah, I'm putting the mountain right on top of you. I bury you right here. We took a look up and we said, okay, okay, now that you explained yourself, of course we'll accept your Torah. The Altar Rebbe, or in Torah Ur, says that this is actually a euphemism. It's not literal, it's not in the scripture. It's, a, it's, it's, it's metaphorical. God overwhelmed us. He revealed all kinds of things to us. We were swept away, so to speak, swept off our feet. We didn't really warm our feet. We got, got swept off our feet. So we said yes. But that was with regard to the oral Torah. And the Gemara tells us that up until Purim, we had a, a real, so to speak, we had a way out. We could say, hey, hey, you forced us. We didn't accept this by will. But once Purim comes along, no more excuses. Now we took it upon us, and now consequences can really come. And there are many, many questions that this engenders because the first base of Mingus was destroyed as a punishment to the Jewish people. So, so we weren't exactly exempt. And, and in fact, the story of Purim in and of itself is an example of Hashem exacting payment. So how can we say a very, very nuanced subject with lots to say about it? I do believe that I've actually shared some Divri Torah on this as well in the past. But the Menachem of Nafshi says, didn't we say Nasev and Nishma? Didn't we say we will obey? And then we will listen and learn? So he says, yeah. We said that about the scripture. We didn't say it about the oral Torah. So Esther's question is, I realize the Jewish people have abandoned the oral Torah. They're not following the halacha. But have they now abandoned the essential biblical principles as well? Oy vey. In that case, there's no excuse, because that they accepted upon themselves willingly. Anyway, that's how he explains it. So the Gemara goes on to say, so what happened? So Esther calls for Asoch. By Agidu, Lemordchai, as Divri Esther, the Gemara continues. They communicated with Esther and they told her what Mordechai said. They told Mordechai what Esther said. Esther wants to know what's going on. Has it gotten that bad? Have they abandoned the Torah itself? The Ilu, the Gemara notes, Ihu le'oza legabei, hasoch, who is sent for the words that we hear about, he sends a message from Esther to Mordechai. Mordechai sent back a message, as we read in the Megillah, sent back a message to Esther, you need to go now to the king to plead for your people. And Esther said, uh -uh, I'm not going. That contravenes the law. I can't do that. So the Gemara says, what happened to Hasoch? Hasoch is a very active participant, hand-selected by Queen Esther herself, and yet, later on, Hasoch is AWOL. So the Gemara says, Mikan, from here we see, She'ein Mishivin 
al hakalkala that you don't be the messenger for bad or negative things. Rashi says, "Ve'ilu ihu Daniel Daniel seems to drop out in the middle of his mission. Ala kalkola, what's the kalkola? What's the bad news? What's the inappropriateness? What's the spoiling of the situation, if you will? Shaisa Esther minas Esther said, "I'm not going to the king. Forget about it. You gotta be kidding." Daniel said, I'm not bringing a message like that back to Mordechai. Hasach refused to deliver a message like that. And Esther had no choice. But she sent her words back to Mordechai by the virtue of others. So there's a lot to talk about this notion of um, bringing the bad message back. Why were the others not concerned? Mashal says the others weren't concerned. Daniel's a big tzaddik. He functions with perfect comportation along with the principles of Torah, ideals of Torah. He's not going to be a messenger that brings bad news. They didn't care. They didn't know. The Sefer Hasidim says that this rule that you don't bring the bad tidings is only when there's no point to it. Pointless glad tidings. But when there's a point, there's no wisdom in playing games. The message has to get get across and be given. So because of this, actually Hasach made a big mistake. Hasach needed to deliver this message. And it was unfortunate that Esther had to find somebody else. And as we talk about, in the end, Daniel had, so to speak, a blind spot here. Because Daniel himself was thrown into a den of lions. Daniel himself risked his life, went on Mesirat Nefesh. When he heard Esther's unwillingness to risk her life, he couldn't deal with that. Others could bring the message. Daniel could not countenance that because of Daniel's background. Anyway, there's much to say about it, but let us, as they say, move on. What was the message of Esther? In the end, there's a back and forth between Mordechai. Mordechai uses very harsh words. He says, do you think you got here by accident? It's all choreographed. There's a reason for all of this. He says, Leich says, go and gather all the Jewish people. Ad, until in the Pasuk it says, unlawfully. Esther says, I will do, I'll do this unlawfully. Amar Abba, Rabbi Abba says, what is the meaning of Shalei Dos? What is the meaning of not according to custom convention or law? Shalei Dos Haya. This was unlawful. Besides being unlawful in the literal sense because you are violating the words of Achashverosh, which is bad and dangerous. That is not what concerned Esther. Daniel misread her. She wasn't worried about risking her life. She said, it's Ashalei Chados, it goes against the rules of the Torah. Because up until this point, up until this point, I never willingly submitted myself to Achashverosh, and as such, the submission was considered to be beyond the purview of my choosing. And I was not held responsible. I never came to him as a wife. He called for me. 
Esther said, I had no choice. But now, by my own volition, I go to Achashverosh as wife. And you know what that means. Now, when Esther will be with Achashverosh, nobody forced, nobody co coerced, or she was under no duress. It was a willing choice she made. The Marsha talks about this. He says, how does the Gemara make a drasha? There's no room for a drasha over here. So he says, if it would say, Ashalei Chados. So it was, Ashalei Chados. But it doesn't say, it doesn't say, Ashalei Chados HaMelech. It doesn't say, not according to the law or convention of the king. It just says, unlawful. And unlawful is a uh, ambiguous kind of statement. It includes laws other than the king of flesh and blood. It includes a larger sense of law and order. Those are the laws of Hashem. And that's why it must refer, the Gemara says, to the dot, to the rules or to the law of Torah itself. Now, Rabbi Nu Yoel Sirkish, the Bayat Chadash or the Bach, he says, he adds the words in the Gemara, Shaleika Das Kol He says, in an unconventional fashion, not as per custom, the daily custom. In other words, he reads this not so much as a violation of Jewish law, because it's not a violation of Jewish law. In the end, Esther's doing what Mordechai said. And in the end, Esther's doing this because she wishes to save the Jewish people. And how could that be a violation of law? We sail Tvarach Meyal, that Yal is considered to be one of the most blessed women in Jewish history. And on the literal level, it seems, she submitted herself to Caesarea. But she did what's called an Aveda Lishma. She did a sin for the holy purpose. And that's even greater than a mitzvah Lishma. So Esther is going and submitting herself. That's a sin? That's Shalei dust. That's unlawful? If you would ask the Halacha, what should Esther do? Save herself from submitting to Achashverosh and allow the Jewish people to be killed and, and, and fall into genocide? Or listen to the Rebbe Mordechai who tells you go. He's a Navi, he's a prophet, he tells you go. And through this you end up saving the Jewish people. You think that's Shalei Kadosh? You think that's unlawful? It's unconventional. It's not customary. It doesn't follow the normal rhyme and reason, says the Bach. And then... Esther says, V'chasher ovadati, ovadati. If I will be lost, then I will be lost. Now this can be understood on a literal level. It could also be understood on a much deeper and spiritual level. So what I would like to do before we go on to the chasher ovadati, ovadati, as we near the end of this Gemara, I want to share with you a beautiful uh, lesson, an idea about this notion of perhaps following the approach of the Bach, who says that Shalei Kados does not mean unlawful, but rather unconventional. There is a fascinating Zohar, which is found in Pasha's Beshalach, about the verbiage we use in our high holiday liturgy prayers. We say, Uvechein. In the Ashkenazic way it's sung, Uvechein. Three times, three times you say Uvechein. And the three times of Uvechein, correspond to the words that are found in the scripture describing Hashem's protection of the Jewish people, that it says that Hashem protected the Jewish people as they went through the camp. There's Vayasa Malach Hashem, Vayelech, Vayamoid, various, so to speak, proses that Hashem assumed in saving the Jewish people, 
So that's what we talk about over here. That's how we understand this on the level of, of that gets filtered into the notion of Hashem protecting the Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah and giving us the judgment and the proper verdict that we seek. And the Gemara is very, very sharp about this. Hani Tlas, in the commentary, Nitzutze Zohar, he emphasizes, he brings from a tshuva of Rab Haigo and tshuva Sagaonim, and he says, Ubechein, 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 Istakinu Tolata Velo Yater. Three times you say the word Ubechein, but not more than this. And that's a remez to the word Anivahu and Hashem's name, and so on and so forth. I don't want to go into the details. It represents Chesed, Gvur, and Teferes, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, so on and so forth. Now the fact remains that in our Nusach HaTfilah, we say Ubechein not thrice, but four times. So the Tur, the Balaturim, he says in Simen Tovkuf Pebeis in chapter 582, which talks about the high holiday prayers in, Shuchun, in, in, in the forward of the Shulchan Aruch and the Tur, he says that this is connected to the notion, to the scripture, Ubechein of Melech, and so I will go to the king. Now it sounds from the Tur that all the Bechains are like Ubechein Avay. The Rebbe, in the first Purim, after he accepted the Nesiyah's Purim, 1951, began the Fabrengen by speaking about the Nusa Chatfila, the liturgy of the high holiday services. And he talked about the Zohar that says it mentions only three times Ubechein. And he spoke about an hour Nusach, according to the Arizal, and many, many other Nuschaot, it's four times, Ubechein Arba Pavim. So he says, we could explain this by the basis of what the Tur says, that Ubechein is connected to Ubechein Avo Elamelech Ashaloka Dasa. will come to the king unconventionally. And the Rebbe suggested that the Tur means not the three Ubecheins, but the fourth Ubechein. There is a conventional manner of prayer. There is the rhyme and reason. We come before Hashem with our mitzvahs with our devotion, with our commitment, was somewhat deserving or at least able to offer petition. And then, and then there's a time when perhaps a yid is undeserving and this approach is entirely uncustomary and unconventional. And the Rebbe went on to say that despite it all, it's not convention and it's not customary and it's not typical, predictable or the norm. And yet, if you have Mesirat Nefesh, if you're ready to cast everything aside, you can have the ability to penetrate the inner sanctum of the king. Lavoy al HaMelech al And the Rebbe spoke about the power that's given to every Yid on Purim. That on Purim, even if we are in so Hatsi-Tatsi in our Yiddishkeit, even if there's lots of ga gaps and areas and voids which are not filled with the proper meaning, and we aren't functioning as per our ability. We aren't living up to our potential. On Purim, Uvachain of Elamelech Hashalekados. Purim, and of course on Yom Kippurim, is a, a corollary. And we can come to the king in an unconventional fashion, and we are still able to proverbially speak to receive the notion of divine beneficence and allowed into the inner throne room. At any rate, Esther said, once I go, what does this mean, the double expression? Esther said, I lost, okay, avadati. What's avadati, avadati? Literal level, I'm going to die, I'll be killed by Hashverosh. But the Gemara understands that there's a redundancy here. 
And therefore, there's a deeper message that the Marsha says. And what is the drasha? Therefore, the Gemara says, this is what Esther was really saying. Kishem shavadatim beis Abba, just as I have lost the privilege of living in my father's home, I'm no longer living amongst Jewish people, I'm living here in a non-Jewish setting as the Queen of Persia. Now, kach oived mimcha, now I will lose my special liaison with you. Because as we learned in the Gemara earlier, Esther was Mordechai's wife, and she would be with Haman, with Achashverosh, pardon me, but then after she would immerse in a mikvah, and there's a whole discussion of what that immersion is about, and she would go and be with her husband. She remained loyal to her husband. But this was possible up until now, where Esther had been with Achashverosh under duress and used something called moich, which is a form of birth control, so that if she would conceive, it would be through Mordechai, not through, es- not through Achashverosh. But at this point, now Esther says, I will no longer be able to be with Mordechai. From here, my marriage is over because if a woman chooses to be intimate with somebody other than her marriage, it's not what we call under duress a rape, then at that point it is no longer possible for her to live with her husband anymore. And so Esther says, I'm doing the halacha, it's an unconventional thing though what I'm doing. And the lack of convention necessarily prohibits me from being with my husband after. And so, now, oived mimcha. Esther knows she will never go back to a normal life. She will never be rehabilitated her husband. She will never return to the Jewish people. And sadly, she doesn't. She remains in the palace until the end of her days. She does have a child. There's a dispute whether that child was fathered by Mordechai, but according to the majority opinion, the child is fathered by Achashverosh, a Jewish boy, but he does not behave Jewishly at all. Darius II is the one who allows the base of Migdash to be rebuilt. Tragically, he does so with a huge chip on his shoulder. And it is not done in a manner which bespeaks his loyalty, his commitment to Am Yisrael. So what happened? The Gemara says once Esther was prepared to do that, Vayaver Mordechai. Mordechai went over. Amarav went over where? It can't be he went somewhere else. Esther said, go and gather the Jews of Shushan. Where did he go to? So Esther had done something very, very extraordinary here. Even though as the Tshuva Samarik says, she did a mitzvah rabbah, a great mitzvah, the technicality still would prevent her from being with Mordechai, a great Mesir Snefesh, great personal sacrifice. Mordechai, in turn, did something very unconventional. Omarav shehever yemrishin shel Pesach betainus. He passed the first day of Pesach fasting, and obviously there was no matzah, no moror, no consumption. They were fasting for three days, as Esther had requested. Shmuel Amar Shmuel says, the other are kuma demaya. He went to cross a river because it was, Shushan was like twin cities, and the Jewish ghetto was on the other side of the water. Mordechai went straight across, unconventional, went straight to the water to go straight to the people to carry out what Esther had said. And this thus began a spiritual process. As the Mamlois quotes, the circumstances were such that when Jewish people would fast and become weakened, their animal soul, their body would be weakened, Esther knew that the neshama would be revealed. And remarkably, a wave of incredible tshuva and spiritual awakening sweeps across the entire Jewish population of Shushan was the most assimilated of any of the Jewish communities. And so it was, by Yibayim Ashlishi, on the third day, Esther now 
uplifted, empowered, energized, and buoyed by the efforts of the spiritual efforts of the Jewish people. Vatilbash Esther Malchus. Esther robes herself in royal raiments. Big day Malchus me Lady Gemara says. It should have said royal raiment, but it says robe yourself in, 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 in royalty. Amr Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar says, and we learned this Gemara previously already, Amr Rabbi Hanina Malamed, that she was robed in divine inspiration and in higher consciousness. As it says, Ksivach of here it says, robed. The Ksiv there it says, Veruach Lovshas Amosai, Amosai was robed in higher consciousness, and he knew what David and Melech's fears were. We talked about this several ep- episodes ago. I'm not going to repeat and discuss it. And with this, the Gemara concludes its analysis of the impact of Mordechai ringing alarm bells, the impact, and we will then see how things unfold and continue to develop. But in the meantime, the Gemara will go on a bit of a digression. Since it has raised a number of issues, the Gemara will talk about a number of different issues. We'll talk about blessings and curses and all kinds of other fascinating things. And for this, please join me. Same time, same place, same station for the continuation of this special Tom's Talmudish series on Purim.